Hello there. Uh, Fiction is First is very pleased to present uh, Rachel Ann Warren, the multi-talented Rachel Ann Warren, uh, reading uh, Love on the Block, and we'll be having a conversation uh, during the course of it. You want to say hello? Hello. All right. So uh, we're going to listen to it, and we hope that you enjoy the conversation. The dancer's flesh stood out like a cracked open egg in a vat of hot frying oil in a pan. Her hair wasn't done, and she didn't wear makeup. Her ass was huge and tied up with tight bands under each cheek. The thin strip of yellow thong escaped the crevice to reveal rhinestones that sat in a line like a bird in flight. She writhed around the floor of the stage, making her ass jitter one purposeful section at a time. She laid on her back and stuck her legs straight up in the air before dropping them open. She kicked her clear plastic heels across the bar and opened up. Her fingers smacked and tapped her pink parts while she stared at me, amused. The barmaid called me and another new girl over and told us how it would work. We'd each have to get at least four drinks that night to earn our $100. Anything more would be bonus. Anything less, and we'd walk with just tips. She asked what names we'd like to go by. I said Heather, and the other said Carrie. Not entirely sober, but manageably dopey, the barmaid told us how to sweet-talk the guys as they came in. Then she said she would come over after a minute and ask the man to buy us a cocktail. Each cocktail cost $25. I asked about a bathroom, and the dubious security man took us upstairs. He led the way to a small room with padlocked lockers lining one side facing a bathroom without a door. Seven girls in sweatpants and little bikini tops were huddled together on the floor, waiting out the shift change. There were no chairs. One girl was skinny, and her eyelids hung heavy, but most were full-figured and still somewhat cognizant. One woman had chocolate brown skin, luxurious hair, a firm body, and thick-lensed reading glasses. Her white-toothed smile sobered up and averaged out the lot. What was the idea here? I'm just... And can you tell me a little bit about what you looked like at this point? Sure. Um, So the idea was um, I had been a freelance writer full-time for just a few months. And it's the first time since I was maybe 20 years old that I didn't have, you know, a full-time salary job. And I'd been looking through some old journals and things. And, um, I had dropped out of college with the idea that I would join a circus. And so I did that. It took a while. Um, but I finally got to San Francisco and it wasn't, you know, exactly what I thought it would be. So I got, <laughs> that's, like, that's like a whole other story. Um, I'm not going to, I mean, what, just briefly, mm-hmm. what did you do in the circus? Just like in one, like a, a quick answer. I got there in the off season, so not much. Um, (laughs) But basically, when I got home, I was like, well, this can't be the end of my life of adventuring. So I made this list of 
dream jobs that I wanted to have, including like working at a cemetery or a morgue, working in a strip club, working, you know, um, as a truck driver. So anyway, I was kind of inspired and like cruising around Craigslist looking for odd jobs um, that I could potentially write about. And so I saw this ad on Craigslist and it was for um, a shooter girl at a chain on the block. So I applied and I got the job. And um, what did what did Heather look like? So Heather, much like my other alter egos when I play music, um, I wore a silver wig um, that was like bangs and past my shoulders. I wore um, a push-up bra with this like black lace tight sort of like not exactly lingerie, but just black lace, like short sheer dress. And that night I was wearing just these kind of like work boots because the only rule was that you had to wear heels of some kind, but they didn't have to be like strappy or like stripper shoes. So I wore these like very masculine kind of boots with this get up. <laughs> Back downstairs, we waited for the men. When the door opened and a cold gush of air raced through, we shifted our sight. The first man was small, older, and not very exciting. After 20 minutes of hearing that he had no hobbies or interests, he didn't like his job or wife, he didn't buy me a cocktail. I shifted back to my post and compared notes with the other new girl. A few minutes later, another older man walked in. He was taller and drank water, so I knew he wouldn't be buying me a cocktail. I told him it was my first night and asked if I could practice on him anyway, but out of the corner of my eye, I saw something that stopped me mid-sentence. David was biblical. His meaty hands swept along his sides as he strutted. His long coat hung down heavy from his shoulders. The other new girl jumped for his attention, but I kept watching him in the mirror between the dancer's thick legs. I figured I would take an opportunity to stand on the other side of him at the bar by asking for water. Just being near him got me hot. I wanted the stranger to turn his attention to me and tell me we could run away together. Instead, the other new girl simply introduced us. He wrapped his arm around my side and I felt small. I could feel his warm hands fastening to my hip bone. Visible electricity connected all of the spaces where our bodies weren't touching and drew us together. He looked me over and cursed under his breath. He shook his head and stopped himself with a huff that meant he gave up, but he never gave up for long. David bought me a cocktail and another and another. He took two dollars at a time and asked if he could stick them in my bra. I grew a whole cup size. He stared at my breasts with wonder. He told me they were perfect and that I was perfect. He looked into my eyes and saw through me. I looked him straight on and opened up. He was constantly surprised like he just imagined me and that at some point someone was going to come over to him and tell him to stop talking to himself. You know, you describe um, David's hands, but you don't otherwise really talk about what David looks like. And maybe it's not important, but I'm still curious what David actually looks like. 
He looks an awful lot like, oh shoot, what is the guy's name? Um, he's like the classic bad guy. He was in Secretary Spader, you know? He looks like James Spader. He looks a lot like James Spader. <laughs> and I don't know, like, it's not because of Secretary, because I'd seen him in, what was that movie where he was uh, a real jerk? He was in, uh... Isn't he the bad guy in 16? No, no. it's, uh, it's, um, pretty in pink. Yes. Yeah. He's like a total jerk in pretty in pink. So, I mean, he just has this look about him. That's like, just like, mm, and his eyes were kind of deep set in the same way, deep set and yet bugged out. And he had this kind of like salesman thing to him, but it was super genuine and like just really, um, convincing in a way. So he was remarkable in one way, but in another sense, he was kind of just like everyone else. The dancers were dancing, and the new girl was lonely, and the barmaid was hustling. But the world seized while David looked at me. One of the more doped-up dancers kept trying to wiggle her way in. She stuck her phone in his face and showed him a picture of a tumor. She said she had a tumor like that, the size of a grapefruit on her ovary, and she was getting it removed in a couple weeks. He handed me dollars, two at a time. He told me to put them wherever I wanted to. I stuck the bills under one of the straps holding little triangles of fabric that were meant to cover up her enormous breasts. He took my hands again. He didn't care who could see. He wrapped his arms around me from behind and turned to face the mirror. He said, look at us. Just look at us. We're perfect. David told me to stand up straight, so I did. He told me to stop being afraid, and I told him I wasn't. No, you're not afraid, are you? He said. The truth is... There was something about him that scared me. Maybe the way he growled or the way he fixated on my neck more than any other part of me. But I liked it. I liked feeling like this man could strangle me, could kill me in some weird way. I instinctively knew he wouldn't, but to know that I felt that abandoned, that careless, that visceral, it turned me on. And it made me feel alive. I'm usually such a control freak when it comes to showing my feelings. I'm wound pretty tight and strangely proper. I say please and thank you. I follow up. I ask, may I please speak with so-and-so? I don't go home with strangers. I don't work in strip clubs. I don't sell a little conversation for free drinks. I split bills. I carry heavy furniture for other people. I run miles outside in 20 degrees and 90 degrees year-round. I'm strong, and I am proud of that. So to be seen as this person that is so small and fragile really caught me. In your mind, is there like a kind of person who goes home with strangers? Is there like, is that a different, is there a person in your mind that, does some of these things that you think of yourself as not doing. Yeah, I mean, 
Um, there have been a couple times in my adult life, at least, where I've thought about women who feel so free, um, you know, in so many different ways. Um, and I've occasionally thought, well, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to like, just do the things that they do. And then maybe that will empower me to, you know, feel as free as they are and be as open and, um, just like, um, I don't know how to say it. Um, just without, mm, without the girdle, I guess. I don't know. Like they just don't care. Um, they're just living life and they want to sort of experience as many things as they can. And if a moment takes them away, um, they go. So I, I ask myself, you know, going back to the circus, I, throughout my career life as an adult, I would often, you know, when I would get frustrated, I would say to myself, Rachel, would you ever run away and join a circus again? And I wanted so much to believe, yes, I would totally run away and join a circus. But I got so caught up in this, like, this is what you do. This is the path you follow. Um, so I guess it goes back to that theme that this is the first time since I was 20 years old, you know, and I'm almost 33, that um, I've been able to say like, yeah, I'm going to run away and join the circus or I'm going to go home with a guy that I don't know or work in a divey strip club on the block um, that's riddled with gang members. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, like I want to join the circus. So, yeah, there are women who join the circus and I want to be one of them. David asked what I was doing in the club, and I told him I'm a musician. I learned earlier in the night not to mention that I was a writer because everybody automatically assumed I was writing a story about the block. And the truth is, I was. I was working undercover, but not on assignment. I told him I sing in a few bands and I just needed a little extra cash, so I was trying the shooter girl thing on for size. He said there's no such thing as a shooter girl here. He said I was a sitter, and that a sitter is a girl who just hasn't become a stripper yet. Other girls came up for cash tips from David while we talked, and he'd hand me the dollars and have me stuff them between more elastic and flesh, but he never took his eyes off me. He muttered, mine, 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 like a gentle warlord, and I liked it. It took a great deal of effort for him to finally leave. He spent hundreds of dollars in less than an hour and said he had to work the next morning. Plus, he said he still had to get back home to Annapolis where he lived. He told me he'd been engaged once but had an affair, so she left him. He said he knew he'd fucked up that time and promised me he'd never do something like that again. His eyes shot through me like bullets hit hearts and stopped cold. When David finally left, I didn't see the point of staying, but I couldn't let that be the end of the story. I had work to do and private parts to examine and shifty side dealings to mentally document for my story. I had to comprehend the beast. I couldn't possibly do my job sharing the same air with that man. Once I had enough oxygen again, I saw everything for what it was. Most of the dancers were getting wasted, and I was getting tired. 
Less than an hour to go and just one married couple left. I caught up with the other new girl who also met her cocktail quota. As the clock ticked closer to closing time, the room suddenly filled up again. Men came out from the cold and oogled and slurred and forced their bad breath too close. I sat at the bar and checked my phone while the hungry hippos feasted on their prey. Then David walked back in. You don't belong here, David came straight up to me and said. He said it again and again like a stuck alarm. You don't belong here, he emphasized each word one at a time. David asked how old I was and I told him, 32 and a half. He told me he had plenty of money if that's what I needed. He listed all the stores I could shop at. Neiman Marcus, he said. I told him I don't want for much. I could see he was struggling with something when he held my hands, but I couldn't draw it out of him. One girl yelped and the room instantly adjusted. The cops were coming through for their nightly check and there's a no-touching rule. I dropped my hands at my sides immediately and stepped a foot away. It felt too far. David didn't bother to whisper when he said it again. You don't have to be afraid anymore, do you know that? He said, and I told him I did, because for some reason I did. Have you wondered about who David was actually talking to? Because, I mean, I think you could sense that there was something he was struggling with, but it wasn't clear what it was. And I could be wrong, so tell me if I'm wrong, that it, it's not clear that he was struggling with you because he couldn't have known that much about you. He, In fact, he didn't know that much about you. So I don't know if you've thought about that. Yeah, I mean, some things that I didn't necessarily explain that kind of maybe paint him to be a little bit more complicated are that he kind of was sort of like investigating me. Like, um, he, he would like pull my wig aside and, and sort of check my ears to see, well, maybe she's wearing that wig because she's got really big ears or he would kind of like, he asked me, you know, uh, X number of CCs and I had no idea what he was talking about and finally I realized oh he's talking about what size breast implants do I have because it's he knew them by size <laughs> and silicon yeah volume. meanwhile I said oh this is not you know plastic it's Victoria's Secret and he said oh Victoria's Secret ruins another fantasy so like he kind of he was kind of like um, unveiling me in front of me and I was kind of like allowing it to happen because in that moment I thought well I've got everything pretty secure on here he can't you know he can't go too far you know what I mean kind of well I mean physically he can't go too far but you had other things you were also pretty securely shielded you weren't gonna let him in to the real you even and at the same time. So you had your, your costuming was pretty secure, uh, uh, literally and figuratively. I mean, yeah, that's true. But to be honest, when I say like he looked at me and I, I felt like I had no reason not to just open my heart. Um, if there's such a thing of like opening your soul of your eyes or something, like I just looked at him straight away, straight on. I didn't have to blink. I didn't have to breathe.
breathe. I didn't have to do anything. Um, and he, in that, in those moments, he could do anything, um, to me. And I would have, it, it felt like I would have allowed it. I just didn't feel any ounce of defense building up. I just, part of it was conscious. I mean, part of it was that I wanted to like go there. So I was like telling myself like, don't blink, don't breathe, don't move, like just go, let it happen. So I guess like I, I more than who was he talking to the costumed me or the real me at the mo in the moment, I, I wanted to, him to talk to the me that I haven't seen for a really long time because I thought maybe that would make her a little bit more real, I guess. One of the experienced girls was pretty fucked up by the end of the night and kept nagging for me to get David to pay us to have a threesome upstairs. This is something I knew I would never do, but playing the part meant I couldn't judge. She said if we arranged it through the club, we could split as much as $600. She warned me not to go off on my own and do it, because if the club found out, they'd fire me on the spot. David could hear her because she was yelling into my ear. She's not going upstairs, he said. She will never go upstairs. He looked at me and repeated, you will never go upstairs. Do you understand that? You do not belong here. Uh, has David ever gone upstairs? Oh, David knew what that meant. I mean, he heard exactly what she said and he knew exactly what it meant. So in my mind in that moment and probably before that i knew that david had been upstairs i wanted to confess everything about the story and the why but i couldn't maybe there's a reason i'm here i said there is no reason for you to be here he said the last call lights came on and david had to go he slipped me his business card as he left he said he wanted to take me to dinner. I looked him deeply in the eyes and hoped he would understand that I felt it too. I gathered my things in the room upstairs and pulled my coat over my costume. I wrapped my neck in a warm scarf and tied it around more tightly than usual. On the way to my car, parked on the fourth story of the parking garage a block away, I wondered if I would find David waiting for me his hands outstretched. But the cops keep the area fairly clear of John's at that hour. It was mostly college girls in yoga pants and uniformed men at every corner. I paid for my parking and played a song on repeat. I took the longer way home, straight up Charles Street, and I thought about David. The city is so cold and lonely at 4 a.m., it aches for a traffic jam. It doesn't know how to be. I pulled up to the parking spot next to my house and pictured my life with David. It would be interesting, if nothing else, and I long to live a life worth writing about. My bedroom floor became a dumping ground for all of the accessories that made me Heather. My bathroom sink was muddy with makeup and glue. I looked myself over in the mirror and had to process the transformation. 
Before I looked David up, criminal records and all, I decided he would never love me like this, in stretchy black pants and a baggy sweatshirt. He would only love me in that club that one night when I was utterly alive and unable to save myself. This way, I thought, if he had a rap sheet 10 feet long and four feet wide, it wouldn't hurt like hell to take my name out of the hat. I sat down and typed his information in. Reality crushed, and suddenly magic only existed in tricks. I lost three colors in blindness and fell asleep without the will to dream. What David saw in Heather, to a certain extent, was a person who, in his mind, was making, you know, these terrible mistakes, right? And I guess part of the fantasy for him is he's sweeping in and taking you to Neiman Marcus. And that somehow, but it, what's so interesting, or just what is what's going on, in, is you were doing the exact opposite. You were, like, exploring and checking things out and... Or maybe, I mean, at the same time, there are sex workers who are also either exploring or checking things out or owning their lives in their own way. And still the Davids of the world would project that, oh, here's a girl gone wrong. Like, in this case, he was wrong because you, because you were doing a whole other thing. But in other cases, men go into those clubs all the time and project ruined women or the ruined women's story onto women who are also totally owning their stuff and sort of controlling their lives. They're just doing it through sex work. I don't know how much you sort of thought about that. Yeah. I mean, there was that one girl, the white toothed um, one that sobered up the lot. And I remember seeing her phone and she had the screensaver that was this superwoman stripper, this black superwoman stripper. And it looked just like her. And I thought, oh man, she is so cool. This girl, like she's owning it. She doesn't go upstairs. She has a couple drinks, but she's responsible and she's really good at dancing. So although she was like kind of one of the odd ones out, she was totally sex positive and she was having fun and this was like a calling for her. Um, but she didn't go around to the guys and kind of pretend to be shy or coy or she wasn't really hustling like that. She was like dancing and, and earning her tips, um, that way. But a lot of the girls, maybe they weren't as pretty or maybe they weren't as, you know, good at dancing or, or maybe they were more desperate or motivated by addictions and things. So a lot of the other girls would kind of put on this character that was like, really desperate like the woman with the tumor um and she showed the picture of this horrific looking tumor on her phone and like they would go to great lengths to show how helpless they really were um but it was all this act or or or, or how helpless they weren't really but like mm. their helplessness was part of what got more money 
it's very, which is also, it's just very interesting. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, it's a hustle and they're good at it. And meanwhile, I have no idea what I'm doing, but somehow it's kind of like when you're a waitress, they always say like, tell them it's your first night for the first three weeks. And of course, you just always make more tips when it's your first night. So um, people feel bad for you and they feel like, oh, you know, she's learning or she must be so nervous or overwhelmed. Um so I think I had that on my side because I certainly didn't go into this consciously thinking like I'm going to, I wasn't, I wasn't even looking to make my quota necessarily. If I didn't make my hundred bucks, it would have sucked a little bit, but you know, it would have still been a story. So my helplessness was just, um, it was purposeful, but it was also, um, just me being honest with myself that I was in a completely unfamiliar situation and that somebody could have killed me or taken advantage of me, um, you know, in some way, although I also kind of knew that that wouldn't happen, but <laughs> it's, you know, um, I mean, it's tough, but like what, I mean, what's on the rap sheet that's, is there, is that, is there something on the rap sheet that's, that's actually shocking? I mean, the rap sheet well, in I mean, what state? <laughs> <laughs> there's also the, the fact that there's a rap sheet. I mean, for the not everybody has a rap sheet. So, I just learned how to look up people's criminal records because I wrote a, a cover story, and part of that was like un, uncovering that this guy was a total fraud. And if I had known how to look up his criminal record, I would have realized that. So, um, you know, it was like the next week or something. So as soon as I get home, you know, once I got changed, I, I was kind of like, do I look it up? Do I not look it up? But of course I did. And I just looked at the surrounding states and it was a long list of offenses, including, um, various peace orders, which, you know, are like, yeah. stay away from me. Um, um, and, uh, peace orders are things like, uh, temporary restraining orders, Things from people who he was bothering, who he they wanted him to stop bothering them, primarily women, I'm sure. Yeah, so there were a number of those, like a number of them. And um, solicitation of prostitution, which wasn't shocking. There was a, a number of those as well. He seemed to like, I guess he worked in D.C. or something. He had a, quite a few in D.C. Um, and quite a few in Maryland. And I don't, I think there's definitely some assault on there, but I can't remember beyond that. There was nothing like rape or anything, you know, along those lines, but it was enough that, um, he certainly wasn't like the guy that was going to save me, <laughs> you know, not that I needed saving, but in this fantasy that I was living in that moment. Right. He, so he, he couldn't even manage, he couldn't have saved Heather even. He was, he was really kind of just bad news. What 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 sort of finally strikes me is um is really the power of chemistry and like all the other things aside, sort of what what's happening is was a was sort of a powerful dose of interpersonal chemistry, and that that's kind of undeniable regardless of the setting and kind of regardless of what masks either of you are throwing up. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, there was definitely chemistry and I guess my like sensible self, you know, once I got home and I realized, okay, this is who you really are and this is who he really is. Can they fit? And I just couldn't put that together. Like I was the one in the end who didn't call and I was the one who 
decided you can't fit um in a weird way because I didn't want him to see me as I was and realize that, you know, not, there wasn't enough Neiman Marcus in the world to fix me up. Um, but I guess like, I don't want it to seem, I guess I want to say something about like this whole, at the end, you know, I, I really did go to sleep and not want to like dream anymore. And, throughout my life I've I've believed in magic when I was a little girl I would believe in magic and it's this thing that stuck with me and I see my friends get older and they believe a little bit less a little bit less a little bit less but I still believe in magical things happening and unexpected things happening and I guess like when things like like David happen um it kind of chips away at this like you know thing that's at my core that I still believe, you know, I'm not a little girl anymore. And I still believe that unexpected things can happen. But, you know, I guess it's more of, it's not just David, but it's like the bigger, the bigger issue that somewhere deep, deep in there is this worry that, you know, at one of, one of these days, like, I'm going to realize that there is no magic. And, so maybe it's easier not to believe in it. Yeah, it's easier not to believe in it than to believe in it just to be disappointed. But um, I just want to thank you because it's for sharing. It's because it's it is really uh, it's a it's a very intimate description of this sort of very bizarre night. I just wanted to thank you for um, for coming and sharing the story and having the conversation. I want to thank you too. Thanks for having me. So, um, on behalf of Fictionist First, I want to thank uh, Rachel Ann Warren for coming in and sharing her story, Love on the Block. And um, check out Plurals. It is her band, P L R L S. Mm -hmm. And um, I hope that you enjoyed the conversation and the story. Thanks. Should we say that you can check out the Tandem article? Sure, you should. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. So you can check out um the article that I went there to write about um about the block that was recently rated Ches Joey this club was rated twice since March um and last week most recently the first time for gang related activities and last week for um or I guess I don't know if it's currently last week June 25th um it was rated for human trafficking um which I didn't see either of those things happen while I was there but if you check out city paper um I wrote an op-ed piece and you can see you know what what I wrote about what I saw Thank you take care <laughs>